you have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Corey Doctorow. Hello? Hello? Is this Corey Doctorow? Yes, hi, how are Hello. you? Hello, thank you for taking this phone call from me. I'm very pleased no, to be speaking course. to you. Where am I finding you? Oh, I'm uh, in my place in Burbank, my new my new home and my new home office. So so you've you've moved. That's right. Yeah, I live in Los Angeles now. When when did this happen? I I think it escaped me. Uh, well, it, we, my wife came over in mid-June, and I brought our daughter over in mid-July. Uh, and we've been kind of running around ever since getting settled in. Our, our container only arrived a couple of weeks ago, actually. So we've been living out of a couple of suitcases and, uh, for several months. What, what's in the container? Um, a kind of mixed bag. It's hard to figure out what to store and what to take when you don't know how long you're staying for. It's kind of an indefinite leave. We're, we're in the process of applying for our green card. So we really just stored stuff that um, we didn't think we'd want to have over until and unless we, we owned a house. So there is a few pieces of furniture and all of my contributors' copies of my books, which is, you know, boxes and boxes of dead trees that don't make any sense to ship across the ocean. And, um you know, tax records and, and this and that. We we kept the apartment in uh, that we own in London. We're, I think we're going to end up selling that too, but we left some furniture in it for the tenants who've moved in. But you've, you've left London for now? For now, yeah. I mean, London is primarily a, a city that is hospitable to banks, not human beings. Uh, and it's basically become uninhabitable by, by humans. Um, I just couldn't bear it anymore. And um, my wife's work brought her out here as well. Her, uh, her startup, Makey Lab, uh, was part of Disney's Techstars Accelerator. And so they, um, they gave her office space there. And she, they, she continues to have office space at uh, Disney's um, Glendale campus, at the Imagineering campus where I used to work. Uh, and so she's operating out of there now for the U.S. office of her company, Makey Lab. Um, and, uh, for me being in the U S makes a little more sense. I, I got very tired of flying back and forth across the ocean, sometimes as many as four times a month. Now, you know, we live 10 minutes from the Burbank airport and I can do things like go to San Francisco for a morning and be back in the afternoon. It's quite, quite nice. When, when did this feeling about London start? Well, it's been it's building, you know, more for a feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's been building, uh, it, it, I think from the, the, really from the crash, I think it started to become much more poignant. Uh, until then, you could kind of pretend that there was still an operating social welfare state and that uh, people that you saw who were in trouble might have a chance of escaping. But um, very quickly after the crash, and in particularly after the coalition government and now under the Tory government, it was really obvious that Britain was bifurcating into uh, the kind of people who couldn't understand why all of the living space in the largest city shouldn't be turned into safe deposit boxes for offshore corrupt millionaires, and people who um, couldn't understand why they couldn't keep a roof over their heads anymore. And uh, there's this sense of precarity there, this sense that at any minute you could lose everything and that there there will be nothing to catch you that just made it very hard. And, and even, you know, when 
you didn't personally feel precarious. You were surrounded by people who were losing everything, who were in, in deep trouble. You know, just before we left, the Tory government announced a cap to benefits that they've, they've since uh, climbed back on. But literally, I think 95% of the students in my daughter's state school in Hackney would have had to move, you know, out, out to, uh, outside of central London, probably outside of the south altogether if the benefit cap had come in. And uh, that would have been really devastating for those people. They were multi-generational working families living in central London, and like many poor people, they didn't have a lot of uh, capital, cash capital, but they had a lot of personal capital. They had a lot of relationships with one another that allowed them to get by because one person could fix the other person's car or look after someone else's kids. And by atomizing those social relationships, it, those poor people would have been deprived of literally the only capital they had. Um, and they would have been poor in a, in a way that's almost impossible to overstate. They would have become internal refugees in the United Kingdom. Um, and I think that, you know, though the Tories have climbed back on that plan, it typifies their view of the uh, the nature of, of humans, which is to say they're surplus to requirements. Uh, I think in, in the United Kingdom, the dominant view of the political classes is that uh, the real genuine Britons are multinational corporations and that human beings are a kind of inconvenient gut flora for them and that where there's too many of them or where they are behaving in a way that isn't hospitable to their host organisms, they need to be purged. Wow. Corey, do you think it's different here? I, I think it is different. Because, I don't you know, know that it's necessarily it's, better, but it's at least different. Because, you know, you know there's I, I, one thing that I'm feeling. I mean, I mean, I know we both we both have, have uh, you have one child, I have two children, and I'm, I'm, I'm often wondering whether what I have to offer them is so much less than what I was offered. Yeah, I mean that. Well, in in in, I mean, I, 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 I think that's right. You know, I I, I my my family enjoyed enormous uh, benefits from social services when they turned up in Canada after the war. Uh, my my grandparents were displaced people; they had from nothing. From where? From uh, well, from a country that's now uh, Belarus, but was then Poland, and from Russia. Uh, and they had nothing, and if it weren't for the social safety network, they would have been really, uh, I think, in deep trouble. Um, in the case of my grandmother's second husband, he arrived in Canada with, with virtually everyone he was related to being dead, so he had no family to fall back on anywhere in the world, and, you know, he benefited as well. And, you know, my, my family went on to be very productive members of society. My, my, my grandmother's second husband, my, my grandfather, uh, he, um, founded a business and employed lots of people and, and contributed economically, but they also all contributed to their communities and they were, were an essential part of the Canadian fabric. I think Canada's new government is going to be better on this than the old government, although I, I'm, uh, you know, they are, this is the party, the Liberal Party in Canada that refused to allow any Jews into Canada during the Holocaust, where the, the Liberal Prime Minister at the time, when asked how many Jews Canada would allow in uh, from, from Europe, he said, uh, none is too many. But I think that they've reformed their ways since then, um, and I think they will certainly be better than the, the outgoing Tories. But the kind of social welfare infrastructure we have now compared to the post-war infrastructure is is so anemic. And the view of people 
who uh, participate in social welfare is so um, vituperative and the, the hate reserved for the poor, especially in the United Kingdom, is so venomous uh, that it, it's it's really um, kind of hard to understand, except as the kind of hatred that uh, people have for things that they fear more than things that, that they despise. That there's this, I think, this, this view maybe that um, all of us, rather than being millionaires in waiting, are, are refugees in waiting. And when we see people who are becoming uh, internal economic refugees or who are uh, traditional refugees coming from places like Syria, I think we see an uncomfortable future for ourselves. My goodness me. Um, I, I, I nearly feel like I want to go back to, to, to what is in, in those boxes and what will come out. And if, ah. and if now arriving back in the States feels to you and, and near Los Angeles feels to you like a, like a homecoming. Not exactly a homecoming, but you know, the, the, the direction of travel, especially when we left, the direction of travel in the United States was more optimistic than the direction of travel in the United Kingdom. Things have changed a bit uh, with the election of Jeremy Corbyn to run the, the Labour Party and some shifts in the in the discourse there. But, you know, in the United States, when we left, we had just passed the, the first anti-surveillance law in a generation, and then the subsequent week passed two more amendments. Um, you know, there is a, a genuine debate about uh, race and poverty and policy politics here, albeit one that's often very dysfunctional. Um, you know, you have uh, organizations of parents who are getting together to uh, refuse to allow any of their children to take the standard test, standardized tests. Are you for and that? Forcing oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, standardized testing, as someone who was raised by teachers, standardized testing to me is, is, is grotesque. It, it treats education as a kind of business whose product is, is standardized productive humans as opposed to something that does this very idiosyncratic business of learning. And I think it's, you know, standardized testing is part and parcel of the idea that teachers can't be trusted and that teachers as people who are um, on the public payroll are doing something that is innately suspicious and uh, has to be monitored and made accountable um, as though finding out whether or not the quantifiable parts of education are performing well tells you anything about how uh, the qualitative parts of education are performing. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm very glad that we see parents here resisting standardized testing. Thankfully, my daughter won't come up against it for a few years here. She had her first standardized test in the United Kingdom last year at the age of seven, which was shocking. How did she do? Uh, they, I don't know that we even got results. Uh, if we did, I put them out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. If they, if, if they we did, I put them out of my box. mind. They may not be in the. Yeah, box. I, that's right. And, and you know, my daughter's school was the teachers and the administrators there were amazing, uh, but they were they had their hands cuffed by uh, the mandates that came down from above about standardized testing and standardized education. You know, for example, they weren't allowed to grant permission for students to take leaves to do activities with their parents because their um, 
funding was was based on attendance, uh, as though attendance was a good proxy for learning. And so they were even required to turn down requests where there were like really obvious benefits to kids, you know, chances, for example, for my daughter to to go away with her grandmother, her, my my mother, who who designed the K to three curriculum in Ontario and the evaluation process for it. Certainly, getting one on one tutelage while while doing things in Canada uh, was good for her, and there was no argument that it wouldn't be. But you know, they were bound over by their administration to to refuse as a first measure all requests like that. It was um you know it was a nonsense, right? It 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 like it literally everybody agreed that it made no sense and yet nobody could figure out how to solve it. And and it, it seems that what you've just described is is a situation we find ourselves often in, namely the problem is real, we see that it's a problem but we do very little about it. Yeah, and you know, this is the thing that the theme that I'm interested in in, in terms of both technology and science fiction is yeah. the collective action problem. You know, the deadlock. The you know, you could call it the Jeremy Corbyn problem, right? The the self fulfilling prophecy that he is unelectable and therefore he can't get nominated, and therefore when he does get nominated, uh, the the party establishment. Um, Uh, turns their back on him and actively seeks to sabotage him. It's the Bernie Sanders problem. It's the Lawrence Lessig problem. You know, it's this is the 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 problem that um, you you and everybody else need to coordinate your action in order to solve something that all of you are suffering under, and you all agree, but you can't figure out how to coordinate. That is a uh, that is, I think, the wicked problem of our age, and it's one that technology has some really interesting things to say about. You know, this is the whole heart and soul of Kickstarter that you can use, um, you know, threshold collective action systems where you say, well, none of us are bound over to take any action until enough of us agree that we'll take action. And then when, when enough of us show up, we all take action in unison. <laughs> you could really see how that might work, for example, in politics, where you could have a doorbell ringer who says, you know, hi, I'm here to represent a, a third party, and I'm not going to ask you to throw away your vote. Obviously, we all want to get out you know, the rascal who's currently in power. And if voting for me meant that that person would continue in office, well, that would be a terrible trade-off. All I'm asking is that you register someone who would vote for me if enough people who are in your neighborhood agree that they would also vote for me. And then come election day, you know, your whole constituency will be made aware of what's going on. We'll, uh, we'll send you texts every time someone fulfills their promise to go to the poll and vote for me. Um, and then you can make an informed decision about whether or not you're throwing away your vote. And this seems like a way to kind of backform a preferential ballot into the first-past-the-post system that paralyzes politics by, by making you choose from the lesser of two terrible evils. What, what, is, what is Lessig up to now? He's, 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 he's running, no, for, for office. No, he's, he's not anymore. So the so Democratic I, I, establishment... I lost, I lost uh, the thread there a little bit with him, because at some point I, yeah. I, I felt he was. And then it, it... He was, and then the Democratic Party establishment changed the rules about participation in the debate in a way that would have made it impossible for him to be in the debate. Uh, and he gave up, basically. Um, and he's, as far as I know, he's very unhappy. Um, he's been posting some fairly melancholy and angry things to his, you know, media accounts. And and I feel bad about it. And I think that Larry wanted to do something that whatever you think of the plausibility of it, 
that was really significant, right? Making the the debate uh, uh, and the election a referendum on um, whether or not we want our politics to be dominated by a tiny number of super rich people. That's, you know, until we answer that question, all the other questions are never going to be answered uh, to anyone's satisfaction. You know, we, 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 we won't get an answer on climate change. We won't get an answer on telecoms policy. And we won't get an answer on, 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 you know, the criminal justice reform until we have an answer that we can all agree on about who should be in charge of our politics, um, rich people or the broad polity. And and who should be in touch um, regarding our security and our privacy? I'm yeah, I mean, all of those the, questions, you know, privacy really... and security. I, I have a thesis about why uh, privacy um, has become so difficult to assert in the 21st century. And, and I think that it has a lot to do with wealth disparity. I think that, you know, there are people who say, you know, I, I gave a talk at, at West Point a little while ago, which was a mind blower. And I met people there, people of goodwill who care about information security, who said, you know, I worry about my privacy, but I worry about it in respect of Facebook and Google. I don't really worry about the government. They already know everything about me. I work for them. Um, and then, you know, when I go to other circles, I hear from people who say, well, I don't really worry about But the private sector, um, I feel like, you know, I can make commercial decisions that impact um, how, I how my data relates to the private sector, but I really worry about the state gathering data on me. And I think that they're, they're confused about the nature of surveillance. You know, if, if you're worried about private surveillance but not public surveillance, you have to understand that the reason the state is able to affect such massive surveillance, the, the reason that we went from the Stasi having to hire one snitch for every 60 people in the GDR to the NSA hiring one person for every 10,000 people they're watching in the world is because the private sector has is doing the surveillance for them, right? The, the way that the, pub, the, that the state spies on us is by using the tracking infrastructure that we are paying for in the form of Facebook and Google and all these other private sector innovations. You know, the NSA was literally using Google's tracking cookies to figure out that uh, a phone that was that it was surveilling was the same person as a laptop that it was surveilling. And so if you expect that the public sector is going to someday regulate private surveillance, you have to first get to a place where the public sector doesn't depend on the private sector to affect its surveillance for it. They, they have a divided loyalty between evidence-based policy that says that gathering lots of information is corrosive to our politics and to our daily lives, and their um, commitment to spying on everybody and the, uh, the terrifying line that they're fed by the security services who, you know, can go into politicians' offices and say, do you really really want to be the politician who dismantled our spying capability um, when the next time some terrorist attack happens and we start pointing our finger at you and saying, you know, don't blame us for that failure in intelligence. Blame, you know, Senator Bumblefuck. He's the one who, who said we weren't allowed to spy anymore. Um, and, you know, in the same way, if you don't worry about state surveillance uh, or you don't worry about private surveillance, but you worry about state surveillance, the same thing is true, right, that, they're, that they are connected in this intimate way. And, you know, I think it raises the question, why are they spying in the first place? Like, why take advantage of all of this surveillance? And I think that the answer 
is that historically wealth disparity creates um, uh, social instability. You know, Tama Piketty in, in Capital in the 21st Century, he forever returns to uh, France on the eve of the French Revolution. You know, whenever he's discussing um, uh, what a critical um, uh, level of wealth disparity is, he, he returns to the eve of the French Revolution. And his subtext, which I think Americans might miss because the French Revolution doesn't loom large in the American uh, uh, imagination, is that uh, when wealth disparity reaches a certain point, poor people start building guillotines for rich people. And social instability is something that we historically address through a combination of, of guns and butter, right? We, we either uh, do social redistribution as a means of, of legitimizing the system and diffusing the sense that the system needs to be torn down, or we um, use enforcement against people who want to dismantle the status quo. We, we hire guard labor, we do surveillance, we do all of the things that are part of, um, of enforcing against um, uh, subversive elements. And there's a kind of curve where it's no longer economically efficient to hire cops and it becomes more economically efficient to build roads, hospitals, and schools because it's just cheaper, right? You get more bang for your buck. Policing has diminishing returns. But when the pub private sector picks up your surveillance for you and does uh, and, and affects a, a two-and-a-half order of magnitude improvement in the efficiency of surveillance, then surveillance starts to make sense, right? And wealth disparity can go a lot further before it becomes economically sensible to start redistribu redistributing, before it becomes rational in the kind of uh, neoclassical economic sense to do redistribution. And so I think that, you know, these are, that these are connected, that our information security, our privacy, and wealth disparity are all really intimately connected and can't be readily disentangled. <laughs> you were talking about um, the, the, the boots of the novel and, and ways in which... When it when it appeared, it might have made some people worried that they were becoming weaker. Now I I, I know that you're in the middle of of writing a novel yourself, um, which I think you, you told me the title is Walk Away. Can you can you yeah. can you tell me something about it? I'm I'm so curious and eager to hear. I've actually finished it, so it's, finished. it's coming out in tw it's coming out in 2017. Um, yeah, and. Uh, um, my my publisher has bought it. It's called Walk Away, and it's a novel about um, a future in which the people who are thought of as the inconvenient gut flow of corporations decide to strike out on their own. And so it's about people who walk away. Uh, they they go to brownfield sites um, and they uh, use the technology of abundance, 3D printing, and and information led collaborative technologies to build whatever they need without regard to the alleged property rights of other people. Um, and uh, because they can make whatever they want wherever they need to be, and because they um, there is a kind of surplus of brownfield sites left behind by modern capitalism, whenever someone comes along and challenges their legitimacy or their right to be where they are, they just walk away. And they call themselves walkaways. And they just walk away from every one of those disputes um, and uh, sort of take up this passive resistance that uh, by its by its nature and by its existence proof of a different way of living becomes uh, a graver threat to the status quo than any kind of active fight would be. They're living as though it were the first days of a better nation. And... Um, 
it pits them against the people for whom scarcity is a feature, for whom scarcity is a is a means of establishing their own status. Uh, and it's it's about the pitched battles they fight, in which one side is just trying to get away from the fight, and the other side is determined to bring the fight to them. How much in the future is it? It's you know fifty to a hundred years, I guess. Um, I just I got a quote on it this morning from uh, Neil Stevenson, or he called it something like the the the. Let me see if I can find it here. It was a it was a great quote. Hang on. Uh, let's see. Uh, he called it uh, the Bhagavad Gita of hacker maker burner open source Git GNU Wiki 99% adjunct faculty anonymous shareware Thingiverse cypherpunk LGBTQIA squatter upcycling culture zip down into a pretty damn tight techno thriller with a lot of sex in it. <laughs> it is fantastic. Um, yeah, it was a really good quote. It's, it's a very, very good one. <laughs> it's magnificent. Yeah. I wonder, um, have, have, have you sent it around to people like William Gibson? Yeah, I sent a copy to Bill and, and uh, also to Neil Gaiman and uh, to uh, someone else I'm not going to talk about it until okay. I get my quote from him because exactly. it's... Uh, it's uh that there's there's someone who's agreed to read it who I'm very very excited about one of my great heroes so I'm I'm hoping that he likes uh, you, it enough you, to give you, me a quote you, but you, I don't you, want to jinx it yeah you, you leave that you leave that mysterious tell me what are you, what are you most excitedly reading now um well I just finished a book that I was really excited about called um. Oh my gosh, called Aurora by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I'm a huge Stan Robinson fan, but this was his, his best. Uh, out of a field of amazing books, this was uh, an even more amazing book. Um, it's a big, audacious space opera. Uh, that challenges the very idea of space operas and asks what it means to treat Earth uh, as the uh, cradle of humanity as opposed to something that humanity is, is tethered to for all of our future and how it encourages us to view ourselves as separate from the Earth in a way that science is increasingly showing us isn't true, that we are... Um, effectively colony organisms that we coexist with these um, bacteria that are vital to our lives. And these bacteria are part of these larger, longer cycles that are connected to um, uh, the whole planet. And that even on a spaceship that is, you know, has dozens of habitats, each of which are several kilometers long, that recreate parts of the Earth, that that would still only be a trillionth the size of the Earth. And the homeostatic mechanisms that keep those uh, alive and thriving would be severely disrupted by by the scale, and so he he pitches a very plausible story about the Earth being the only place that humans can ever live. It's an amazing novel. It's a very brave novel. He's he's faced a lot of stick for it from uh, other writers, uh, and he's he's done his he's really done his homework on technology. The other thing about this novel is that although it sounds like a kind of hippie Earth hugger novel. It is uh, written in the style of a grand Heinleinian engineer-centric piece of fiction where the core task of the um, characters in this book is solving engineering problems over and over again. The thing that they need to do to get out of trouble is is ingeniously solve engineering problems. And what he shows by dint of, of 
causing them to address themselves to real engineering problems that have to do with extremely complex systems like ecosystems, as opposed to the relatively simple engineering problems of space travel, is he shows that um, uh, what we thought of as the meaty, kind of hairy-chested technical problems of the world are actually the, the trivial ones, uh, the relatively mechanical ones, and that the ones that where you get cascading problems that are uh, nearly impossible to address and very difficult to predict, those are the those are the biological and, and earth sciences that are that are really tricky. So that was an amazing book. And then the other book that I'm reading right now that I'm taking very slowly is uh, Terry Pratchett's last book, The Shepherd's Crown. Uh, I couldn't finish chapter two in one sitting. It's uh, it's you know Terry Pratchett wrote this knowing that he was dying. He yeah. died very young of of early onset Alzheimer's, and he wrote it knowing he was dying. And in it, it's not a spoiler really because it's in all the reviews. In it, a, a, a character of his who has been in the books for nearly as long as he's been writing them prepares herself to die. And uh, I just kept breaking down in tears. And, you know, it's it, it wasn't so much the author's own worries shining through as much as the insight that he gained into mortality by having to confront his in such a meaningful way so early and so publicly. And uh, I'm savoring this book, but I also am finding it emotionally very traumatic to read. I interviewed him not long before he died, and he told me that these books, the Tiffany Aching books, of which this is, I think, the third, were the things he's most proud of. And at the time, I was a little surprised by it, because although I like them, uh, I like these other books that he's written, the, the Moist von Ludwig books that are more about technology. I like those even better. But uh, reading this last one, the last thing he ever wrote, knowing it would be the last thing he'd write, you can really see why these were his books. These were the books that he that mattered to him more than anything else. It's an amazing book. Well, Corey, it's it's been a, a pleasure, pleasure to to talk with you. What what are you going to do after our phone call now? Oh, what am I doing today? Let me look at my schedule. So I've got a roundup. I do a weekly roundup for my colleagues at EFF of the work that I'm doing. So I've got to do that. Um, I have to... Uh, um, the, the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation. That's right. And um, I have an, an email outstanding from one of my colleagues that's a response to something that I've been waiting for for a long time. He's been very busy. He's been at a Internet Governance Forum and has discovered that someone that we've advocated on behalf may be sentenced to death. So he was very busy and didn't have a chance to review this work. So he's come back with some reviews and I have to respond to it and figure out if I'm going to post that publicly. And then um, uh, there's a event I'm doing in D.C. next week that I've just gotten an email from while I was talking to you where they're looking for for panelist feedback before I go and do that. And then I have to schedule a chat with um, uh, someone from the White House, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, and then I'm going to go to lunch and have a swim. Sounds like a, a good plan. It sounds like a, a, a busy day. Is this um, in, in some way what your days are made of usually? Yeah. I, you know, I have sort of three or four major sets of tasks that I do, um, and they're all interrelated, the science fiction, the stuff I do for Boing Boing, and the, the um, activism I do with Electronic Frontier Foundation, but uh, the uh, 
they, what they do is they somewhat atomize my day. So there's a lot of different projects I do that I, that each of them moves pretty incrementally, uh, each day. And the trick is to just have a list. I use, you know, a list every day of, of balls that I have in the air or of things that I'm trying to nudge up the hill. And I just make sure that each one gets a little pat every day. And in that way, everything moves forward, uh, and, and doesn't stall out. I'm a, I'm a great, um, believer in the getting things done method of, of Paul, of, um, what's his name? Paul something. Who are getting things done? I know his book better than I know his name. Getting things done. I wanted to say Paul Allen, but that's not right. David Allen. David. Um, yeah, and and specifically the idea that if there's a thing that you intend to do that you fail to do, that you fail to do it because you looked at all the things that you wanted to do and decided that that one wasn't going to be a priority, and not because you incidentally, by not paying attention to how your time was being managed, happened to let something just fall off track. I feel like I really need to read that book. It's a really good book. <sighs> Well, uh, uh, among the, the many things you did today, I'm really happy that you and I spoke, and I'm I'm happy to know that you're you're in this country, and that sometime I'll be able to hopefully bring you here to the to the New York Public Library at, in the near future. I'm really looking forward to it. I hope that I'll, I'll come out. You know, when when the um, when uh, Walk Walk Away comes out in 2017, that that would make a lot of sense. Have you Have you read Ben Lerner? Uh, remind me. That he, boy, that rings a bell. He he. L e r n e r, right? L e r n e r. He's someone who yeah. I think he. Uh, he oh, he Ma- won the he won the MacArthur, the MacArthur. This, yeah. this year, and he wrote two books that I think are absolutely magnificent. And I had him on this program a while back. One is called Ten O Four, and the earlier novel is called Leaving the Atocha Station. And I think you and he would have right. a lot in common. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at his Wikipedia entry right now. It looks very good. You you really are able to do all of these things at the same time. Ha. Huh. Well, I can I can certainly type with one hand. Listen, um uh thank you so much for speaking to us and uh I hope I hope to to see you soon again. Okay. And I just realized type with one hand sounded dirtier than I intended. <laughs> all the best, huh? All right. Take care. Talk to you later. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Paul. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. And I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months, uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at instagram.com slash criminalbroads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! Break it! Break it!